You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Brian Coleman from Trinity College Dublin. His paper was entitled The Gentry of Tudor Ireland. The purpose of my paper today is to discuss in a very general fashion uh, some aspects of the gentry of English Ireland as it stood at the dawn of the Tudor period. Uh, While recent years have seen the publication of major works on the nobility of Tudor and Stuart Ireland, the gentry both as a class and as individuals remain largely unexplored. In an effort to rectify this gap uh, to some extent, this paper will look at the position of the gentry in the society of the Lordship of Ireland and the relationship to their social uh, superiors and inferiors, the wealth of the gentry and their relationship with the royal government, before finally considering their role in the politics of the Lordship in the early 16th century. So it is a bit of a whistle-stop tour. Uh, <clears throat> as in England, uh, the gentry of Tudor Ireland were separated from the nobility uh, above them by the institution of the parliamentary peerage. Although the Parliament of the English Lordship in Ireland had been divided into Lords and Commons uh, from the late 14th century, it seems that a more firmly established period was the development of the 15th, and especially the latter half of the 15th century. Jane Allmire, in her recent work on the Irish aristocracy, has emphasised how small the peerage was at the turn of the 16th century. What is perhaps even more striking than the small size of the peerage is its youth. Only three peers, Lords Barry, Birmingham, Vattenrye and Fitzmaurice, claimed to hold their title since, before, uh, since uh, the 13th century. Uh, there is no evidence of the holders of these titles attending the Irish Parliament during the course of the 15th century. The 14th century saw the creation of the Earls of Desmond, Kildare and Normand, as well as the Preston Viscounts of Gormson and the Fleming Barons of Slane. However, it was really in the 15th century that the creation of the Irish peerage uh, took off. The reason for this expansion in the number of Irish peers surely lies in the increasing formality of the structure of the Irish Parliament. During the reign of Henry VI, it became standard, standard pro- practice to hold Parliament annually. This continued, on, continued until the introduction of Poynings Law in 1494. The evolution of the Irish Parliament into an annual feature of the politics of the Lordship naturally led to a formalisation of the process of parliamentary summons. It begs the question, however, why certain men were elevated to the peerage, while others of apparently very similar status, who might certainly expect to be summoned individually to a 14th century Great Council, had to wait until the 16th century for a similar elevation uh, to the peerage, or indeed never became peers. The question is particularly vexed in regard to those who claim the baronial title. For each of these who established their right to sit in the Lords over the course of the 14th and 15th centuries, the, Fleming's barons, the Fleming Barons of Slane, St. Lawrence Barons of Hoth and Nugent Barons of Delvin, another was excluded. For example, the Nangle Barons of Navan, the Hussey Barons of Galtrim and the Maraward Barons of Screen. The Butler Barons of Dunboyne had to wait until 1541 before their elevation to the peerage. In this case, the family may have been little involved with the Parliament of the Lordship in the 15th century. Despite their landed base in Meath, the family played little or no role in the governance of that county, serving instead as essentials for the Ormond liberty of Tipperary. On the other hand, the Maurards of Screen and the Wellesley Barons of Dangan were prominent in govern their counties, but never achieved the status of peers. Given the prominence of many of the families who possessed these feudal baronies, it is tempting to argue that the distinction conferred by a peerage was slight and did little to set the new peer apart from their former peers, if you'll forgive the expression. Uh, it is hardly possible to deny the political importance of the leading non-peer families of Yorkists in early Tudor Ireland, and nor is this surprising in the light of the small sizes peerage. 
However, it is clear that by the later decades of the 15th century that a peerage did confer special honour and prestige and that these were jealously guarded. The Irish Parliament in 1460 decried the inordinate and false presumption of Thomas Bath for claiming to be peer, to claiming to be a peer as the Lord of Louth, to which he has no title of inheritance. In 1449, the Parliament decreed that no Lord Parliament was to be made serve as, was to be made serve as sheriff. And when James Fleming, Lord of Slane, was appointed Sheriff of Meath in exceptional circumstances in 1472, Parliament granted him £20 from the issues of the county in the aid and support of his honour in charge, because, as a baron and Lord of Parliament, he was of greater honour and reputation than the verse other persons who have occupied the said office. While this peerage was too small to deny the leading members of the gentry an important role in the politics of the lordship, and its members may not have exceeded the leading gentry much in their wealth, it nevertheless represented a clearly demarcated nobility from which the gentry were excluded. If this peerage provided a clear distinction between the leading gentry and their social superiors, that between the lesser gentry and their social inferiors is much less rigidly defined. In England, the tripart- tripartite gentry of knights, esquires and gentlemen had more or less coalesced by the beginning of the 15th century. The qualification for the title of a gentleman was distinctly vague, and the difference between a poor gentleman and a wealthy yeoman could be very fine indeed. Historians of the English gentry have used an, a variety of exper- expedients to determine whom they should include in their studies of the gentry. One is to use certain levels of lang- landed income to distinguish yeomen from gentlemen and gentlemen from knights and esquires. The latter method is very difficult to use in the Orcus in early Tudor Ireland, as we shall see. Unsurprisingly, the peasantry of English Ireland are even more poorly served by the surviving sources than the nobility or the gentry. Knights, esquires, gentlemen and gentlewomen appear with something approaching regularity, if not consistency, in the administrative, parliamentary and civic records of the later 15th century in Ireland. Young men and husbandmen remain much rarer. Surnames are a treacherous guide to status. The same surnames appear at different levels of society in the Lordship. For example, the Deverickses, who are always Deverickses in Wexford and never Devereaux, uh, of Ballymagire, were, with the Keatings of Baldwinstown, the leading families of the Liberty of Wexford in the 15th and 16th centuries. But the presentments of the Wexford juries in the 16th century include husbandmen with the same surname. While Keatings could be found holding plots of land between 3 and 18 acres in extent in southwest Wexford in 1541. In some cases, a close family connection between these men is not unlikely, as in the case of the assembled, mod, assembled mob of Cods who attacked the Tower House of Robert Brown at Rotaspic in 1475, or between Roger Duff of Kilcoskin, gentleman, former sheriff of Dublin, and James Duff, yeoman, who was ordered to assist Roger in the collection of his debts of office in 1507. The Beeling family, uh, to take another example, provided a sheriff of Dublin in the early 14th century and were found serving on juries of inquisition in the county in the 16th century. In the 15th century, there is little to distinguish them as uh, members of the Dublin gentry. In 1441, a John Beeling of the Wood, husband man, was a pledge for John Carleton, while the will of William Beeling of Beelingstown in 1473 uh, contains little to suggest a lifestyle beyond that of a wealthy peasant. It is not unlikely that many of those at the lower end of the gentry struggled not to dip below the waterline. Younger sons in particular may have found it difficult to maintain their status. The pressure on these cadet branches will have been increased by the expansion of more successful families, both of gentry and mercantile background, who are competing for the same stock of landed properties. Perhaps the most extreme example of this type of expansion is uh, the Barnwell family. 
A list of the gentry of Meath compiled by Christopher Cusack in 1511 includes no fewer than seven landed branches of the family in County Meath alone, in addition to the main branch of Trimblestown. For those who were unable to secure a fortuitous marriage, options were limited. Some, some perhaps became dependent on the main branch, either as yeoman farmers, as may have been the case with the Duffs of Kilcoskin, or as idlemen like the Cods. Others sought to make their way uh, as merchants. The Dublin uh, Civic Chronicle records that in 1531, William Kelly Merchant was sore troubled and lost his goods for hitting the son of Forrester of Cleek, who was his apprentice and had to be pardoned by Skiffington. The Foresters of Cleek were certainly members of the Dublin gentry, albeit not very prominent members. Uh, William Forrester of Cleek, so you'll see, uh, was one of the electors of the coroner of Dublin in 1485. Those who could afford it might send their sons to the court, the Inns of Court in London to begin a career in the law. Attempts to divide gentlemen from yeomen by income are likewise fraught with difficulty. No equivalent to the records of the English taxes of 1412 and 1436 are available to record the incomes of the noble and gentry of Ireland. Taxation in late medieval Ireland uh, was organised on the basis of county subsidies for which no detailed records survive. It was a standard demand of the counties that they would not be forced to account for these contrib- contributions at the Exchequer, a uh, fact which no doubt contributed to their uh, current absence. Valuations of whole estates are exceedingly rare. Uh, Stephen Ellis has reconstructed the value of the estates of Sir William Darcy of Platten from a variety of sources and arrived at a figure of around £120 uh, per year from his patrimony, to which he added over the course of his lifetime. William was clearly exceptionally wealthy by the standards of the gentry of the time. His recognizance not to impose impose coin and livery was of the same magnitude as that given by the leading nobles of Meath. His wife was the widow of Walter Moroard, Baron of Screen, who owned the manor of Santry and other lands in North Dublin, in addition to his Meath estates. Her dower was valued at £16, 3 shillings, 4 pence, and thus presumably the total value of the Moroard inheritance was just under £50 per year. After the suppression of Thomas Fitzgerald's rebellion uh, in uh, the early 16th century, Pierce Butler sought a grant of the lands of John Burnell, who had been attainted for his support of Fitzgerald, as recompense for his efforts on the King's behalf. He claimed that the estate was worth no more than £80 a year, with a townhouse in Dublin that would not bring in more than £4 at the utmost penny rent. He had reason to downplay the value of the estate, but the figure must have had at least some level of credibility. Burnell was among the most prominent gentry of County Dublin, both he and especially William Darcy's incomes are likely to have been at the upper end of the scale of gentry wealth. Information on incomes at the other side uh, of the scale is yet scarcer. In 1410, the Irish Parliament requested that the jurors selected by the Escheater for his inquests be inheritable of 100 shillings in land or rent by the year at least, or such were lacking, the best inheritors within the barony. While in 1494, legislation uh, concerned with the use of English weaponry distinguished between those having goods to the value of £20, who were expected to have a quilted jacket, bow and arrows, uh, which is equipment classified in the same uh, legislation as appropriate to a yeoman of a knight or esquire's household, and the freeholder having land to the value of £4, who is expected to have the same gear and a horse in addition. The freeholder here occupies the space in the social hierarchy where we might expect to find a gentleman. The correspondence, <coughs> the correspondence is not as neat as we might like. It could be contrasted with the legislation of 1537, which laid down fines for those using Irish language or wearing Irish clothing, at 40 shillings for a knight or esquire, 20 shillings for a gentleman or merchant, and 10 shillings for a freeholder or yeoman. The ability to afford a horse and expensive war gear was one of the factors that distinguished the gentry from their social inferiors. When a parley between the men of Kildare and the O'Toole's turned nasty in 1538, the gentlemen were able to reach the temporary safety of the Tower House at Three Rocks, while 60 or so of the poor husbands were slain, for they had no horses to flee. 
1450, the Sheriff of Dublin carried out an extent to the lands of Pierce Coolock, gentlemen. The family had lands worth 100 shillings in Dubber and a fur- further parcel of land in Coolock's Rath, which is now Coolock's Rath, uh, worth 18 shillings per year. That is a total just under £6. Pierce Coolock's £6 is not likely to have sufficed to provide a gentry lifestyle in contemporary England. It seems uh, probable that the English gentry of Ireland, like the nobility of the lordship, were comparatively much poorer than their English counterparts. Stephen Ellis has suggested that the ability to maintain armed, fo- armed followers and call on the military service of tenants was a more important qualification for noble status than landed wealth. At present, I cannot say whether the same holds true for gentle status in Yorkist and Tudor Ireland, but it seems not unlikely, at least in the march. In 1486, John Gaffney, the servant uh, famulus of Richard Lochan, sergeant of the barony of Dulic, arrested Tygmore of Corbley to answer a plea of debt. The line between officer's staff and gentleman's retinue here was very likely a fine one. The list of malefactors of mixed English and Irish background variously identified as gentleman and idleman are a frequent feature of the late 15th century status roles very possibly represent the activities of such retinues. Legislation from the same period against the maintenance of armed bands by coin delivery specifically targets lords and gentlemen, as, that con- as does that concerned with the registering and maintaining order among the members of their retinues. The military leadership of their tenants was part of the expected role of the gentry. Uh, the Act 1494, concerned with the use of English weaponry, demanded that knights and esquires ensure that their yeomen followers were armed in the appropriate, that's to say, the English manner. In the absence of more detailed information on landed wealth, or of lists for other ca- countries comparable with that compiled by Christopher Cusack for Meath, we must rely on a combination of factors to identify members <laughs> of the gentry. Of these, the most important are the records of county office. Once again, the study of office holding in Yorkist and Tudor Ireland is now without its difficulties. Unlike in England, there are no complete lists, lists of sheriffs or other officers for any Irish counties in the period, while records for uh, most county officers are even poorer than those of the sheriff. Stephen Ellis, Brendan Smith and others have done much to rectify this lack, but the names of many sheriffs and other officers have been lost ir- irrevocably. In particular, while the names of those who served on commissions of the peace are comparatively well-preserved for the first decades of the 15th century, they're practically non-existent thereafter. Nonetheless, the records do furnish the names of many, if by no means all, county officers from the period, and provide the best means of examining the size and structure of the gentry that remains to the historian of late medieval and early modern Ireland. It is clear that in later medieval Ireland there was a very large number of families who contributed to the government of their counties. In Meath, individuals from more than 60 families served in the greater county offices of Sheriff, Seneschal of the Liberty of Trim and Keeper of the Peace, or the lesser county offices of a Sheeter, Coroner, Deputy Sheriff or Receiver of Subsidies between 1390 and 1513. By restricting that further to the great county officers, we see that at least 38 Meath families were capable of holding the highest positions in the county. In Meath, then, it is clear that there existed a considerable body of landholding families that participated at a high level in the administration of their county. Broad participation seems to have been the rule in the four shires of the Dublin hinterland. In County Dublin, individuals from around 55 families held either great or lesser county office, while 30 families, uh, if we exclude those who owed their place to a government or ecclesiastical position and not a landed presence in the county, supplied at least one sheriff or justice of the peace. In Louth, around 47 families served in total, of which 29 supplied sheriffs or justice of peace, and in Kildare, 40 uh, served in total, 21 supplying a, just, a sheriff or justice of the peace. Thus, in the four obedient shires, the royal government could draw on a large body of local men to carry out the administration of their uh, counties. In addition, these numbers likely conceal a much wider gentry society of families whose services either hidden by the gaps in the record or who simply never <coughs> held county office in the period. Many of those named in Christopher Cusack's list of gentlemen of Meath, such as Durham of Durhamstown and Map of Maprath, 
are absent from the list of county officers uh, in the 15th century. Even families who did not themselves hold office are likely to have played a role in the government of their counties, especially as electors of sheriffs, escheaters, coroners and knights of the shire. There are far more notices of the election of such officers in the 15th century than there are lists of electors. Two lists of electors from Dublin uh, may serve to uh, illuminate this. The first concerns the election of Robert Bath of Lanestown, Esquire, Sheriff of the County in 1462, and the second the election of the coroners of the County in 1485. The difference between the two lists of electors is striking. All those named as electors of Robert Bath either served the sheriffs themselves or came from families that supplied uh, sheriffs. In contrast, the electors of the coroners include many surnames that were entirely absent from the list of officeholders in Dublin in the 15th century, uh, for example, the Foresters of Calique, uh, while others, such as John Pippard of Balrothery, had served as collectors of subsidies in their baronies, but had never held an office on a countywide level. The difference of the status titles used, uh, esquires for the electors of the sheriff and gentlemen, or no status title at all uh, for those electing the coroner, uh, is also striking. It is clear that a large body of men exists in County Dublin who could partake in the governance of their county, and it is equally clear that this body was divided internally into more and less prestigious families, which Ellis and others have christened county gentry and lesser gentry. Let's turn now from this uh, extremely brief survey of the composition of the gentry of English Ireland uh, to consider the role of the gentry in the politics of the lordship in the early Tudor period. Colin Lennon and more recently Gerald Power have drawn attention to the gentry background of men like Sir William Darcy of Platton and Patrick Finglas, authors a proposal for the reform of the Lordship's government. Come to these proposals were a condemnation of coin delivery and the adoption of Irish language and habits by those of English descent, together with hostility to the government of the Earls of Kildare, which was held to have facilitated these developments. This interpretation pits the civil society desired by the gentry and urban elite of the Pale Mattery against the lineage society dominated by the great magnates and especially Kildare. The importance of the shared background of these men should not be underestimated. But it is clear that the gentry background was no guarantor of opposition to Kildare or support for reform. It is immediately striking how many of Thomas Fitzgerald's leading henchmen in his ill-fated rebellion came from a solid, pale gentry background. The Delhites of Moy Clare were especially prominent, as was John Barnell of Balgriffin. Others included members of the gentry from the four counties of the pale, many, though not all of them, of the second rank. What is it that made these members of the pale gentry join the rebellion? The Delhites were closely related to Fitzgerald by marriage while their lordship of Carberry was on the edge of the pale and dependent on Fitzgerald for its protection. Similarly, John Burnell was a half-brother through his mother of Edward, son of Sir John Fitzgerald. Burnell's lands, however, were concentrated in the immediate hinterland of Dublin City, mostly north of the Liffey, and were as sheltered from Kildare pressure as it was possible to be in early 16th century Ireland. The family were prominent officeholders in Dublin. Every generation of the family between 1450s and 1530s appears to have held the Shreveldy of the county on at least one occasion. On the other hand, the Talbots of Belgard, who had land to the southwest of the city, and whose land holdings and record, of, record as officeholders closely matched that of the Bernals, were strongly opposed to Kildare. Robert Talbot of, Bal- of Belgard was murdered in 1524 by the Ninth Earl's brother on his way to spend Christmas with Pierce Butler. In the, Liberty, in the Liberty of Wexford, the Keatings were traditional allies of the Earls of Kildare, and John Keating was one of those attainted in the aftermath of the rebellion. Their rivals, the Deverickses, were connected by marriage to the Butlers, and they retained their lands. Of the members of the pale gentry who joined Fitzgerald, there is little to suggest why some espoused his cause and some did not. The fields of Painstown, Talbots of Dardistown, and Baths of Dolladstown were all cadet branches of those families, but then so were the Talbots of Belgard, while the Bernals of Balgriffin and Jernans of Jernanstown were not. 
There's nothing to suggest that these families had embraced the Irish practices decried by Darcy and the other reformers to any greater extent than those who opposed Fitzgerald. The Burnells of Balgriffin traditionally had very strong links with the city of Dublin, with, Sir, with John Burnell's ancestor, ancestor Sir Robert serving as mayor of the city uh, in the 1450s. Among other tasks, he was charged with ridding the city of Irishmen. Uh, that's uh, St. Dulux and Belgriffin. Patrick Burnell, a younger son of Sir Robert, had served as Baron of the Exchequer, while John Burnell's namesake, probably his grandfather, was given permission to travel to England on pilgrimage in 1479. There is little to suggest an ideological divide between those who supported and those who opposed Fitzgerald, and much to suggest that the sides were chosen on the basis of traditional Geraldine Butler partisanship, albeit that the higher stakes saw many traditional Kildare supporters refrain from taking up arms against the king. In this, these members of the gentry were following the tradition of their ancestors, whose position in the conflict of the Wars of the Roses was tied to Kildare and Ormond allegiance, many of which uh, alliances themselves were decided on the basis of local disputes. To take an example, the families of Travers and Birmingham, which both had a tradition of service in the royal administration, ended up as Yorkists and Lancastrians respectively on the basis of a feud over the Dublin manors of uh, Baldongan and Ward. In this interpretation, the gentry who joined Fitzgerald in 1536, much like Fitzgerald himself, has simply failed to grasp how times had changed. John Burnell was among those who paid the price. It seems probable that the distinctive background that united reformers like Finglas and Darcy was not membership of the Pale Gentry, but their education at the Inns of Court in London and participation in the upper echelons of the Royal Administration in Ireland. Thank you.